welcome to episode 8 of Ben and Luke's Excellent Adventures, where Luke makes me watch movies because I don't watch movies. This episode, we watched Children of Men, so Luke, why don't you give us a brief rundown of why you made me watch this movie? This is by far one of my favorite movies of the 2000s. Um, this is a film by Alfonso Cuaron, who is a actually also directed one of the Harry Potter movies, oddly enough, so you probably would recognize that, Ben. But uh, he is a fantastic director and has made a bunch of great films, such as Gravity, uh, Itumama Tambien, all kinds of good stuff. And uh, this is just one of my absolute favorites from that decade. Uh, it's a great dystopian film that manages to somehow be more realistic and yet more terrifying than just about any post-apocalyptic film I've ever seen. I did recognize that director's name uh, from my fourth semester of college Spanish class uh, because they did a the book was just a bunch of here's a bunch of popular Spanish related things talk about them and they had a, a section on that director. He is fantastic, so that is that is nice. And I've actually I think I've actually heard you talk about uh, a couple of his films probably because of that. So. I got a little bit of a kick out of making you watch this thing. <laughs> All right. Well, I hate to break your heart, but uh, I was not an enormous fan of this movie. You son of a bitch. So let's talk about that. Why are you, why are you so terrible that you didn't like it? Uh, so at, at least part of it is that uh, I am extremely burned out slash over uh, sad dystopian movies or media where everything terrible happens all the time. And I get that, but I don't know. This one this one feels almost uh, like a breath of fresh air compared to some of the other ones for reasons I'll get into. But this, this is your bitch session, so go into it. <laughs> I mean, along the same lines, I also did not watch more than the first 15 minutes of the first episode of Game of Thrones. So in terms of a popular media that I'm not watching for this reason, this, is not, this movie is not alone. Well, I won't try to defend Game of Thrones because I don't like that shit either, but I think you and I are the only ones. I don't I don't dislike it. I just, I just couldn't watch it. That's what I'm saying, basically, though. And I think some of the same reasons came up. Um, like the, 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 the scene where I stopped watching Game of Thrones was a very uh, viscerally violent scene that I just had no interest in watching, especially because I had already read and liked the books. I just didn't want to experience that on screen i guess uh and similarly the first point in this movie where i kind of pause it or you know disconnected for a little while was when um jillian got shot in the face the throat but yeah whatever somewhere somewhere horrible and i kind of had my suspicions about this from the, the very first scene of the movie because it opens with like the the opening scene ends with a jump scare a loud noise blowing up the coffee shop or whatever and then the wonderful tinnitus sounds. <laughs> the Leonard Nimoy simulator, as you will. Oh, yeah, those are the, like, as he was walking around, the first thing I thought was it was specifically, specifically said, supposed to set, be set in the future, but it didn't look like the future because it was so, so dystopian and so gritty. And that's actually something the director uh, has talked about in interviews, where when he first proposed this film, a lot of the art department and design people were just ecstatic because, you know, as soon as they hear about a futuristic film, they get to dig out all these gadgets and all this, you know, equipment and all this tech and just really go hog wild with it. And he didn't want any of that. 
You know, this is this film is not not a uh, uh, Minority Report style film. It's not a you know crazy tech everywhere, all kinds of stuff being done. It's not a Jetsons future at all. I haven't seen Minority Report report. You know what I'm saying though. It's not a cyberpunk future. Yeah. You know, it's not Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, one of the things I did like uh, in the movie was it's. I felt like at the beginning it was very good at showing the state of the world around him without like being too much of an info dump all the time. We got a lot of glimpses of what was going on, but nobody sat down and tried to explain it all. Yeah, it's very anti-exposition. You never, you never even find out really why it happened. There's hints about it, but they talk about a flu pandemic. They talk about infertility, but they never say why. They never spell it out. Yeah, which nobody, nobody in this situation is going to. Like that kind of makes sense. But yeah, I mean, they've all been living with it for 18 years. They don't have some outsider character that comes in and goes, "What's going on?" <laughs> Except that baby. In about six years, someone's going to have to explain that. They'll have to make a sequel so we can get all the exposition from this movie. <laughs> God, if they ever make a sequel to this thing, that would be the saddest thing ever. Don't do that. <laughs> Please don't take that advice, Hollywood. It was a joke. <laughs> um, so the other... Uh, the, the, on the, the vein of things I did like about the movie, um, it had really cool atmospheric shots. Uh, specifically, there was one where Theo... like we were at they were in the woods and like they were just looking up at the wind blowing through the trees and it was really I really liked the atmosphere of the shot. I've always liked the moment of the deer coming through the building as well, the abandoned building that they're trying to hide out in. Mm-hmm. There's something about nature overtaking civilization. So I get what you're saying with the dystopian future stuff. It, it can be overbearing, and especially with this one. This one is brutal in a lot of ways and it's it's a it it almost feels like your chest is being compressed when you're watching this film because of how tense it gets hmm. yeah i didn't i literally didn't know if anybody was going to get any kind of happy ending at all yeah they're not afraid to kill characters off and and even right at the beginning of the film you know these characters get introduced very quickly you feel attached to them very quickly and then they're dead yep so i get what you're saying with that but you're wrong <laughs> but no what i what, what i will say is though that i think one of the weird things about this movie is that it is so tense and it is so heartbreaking at times but the theme of the movie really is hope you know even down to the ending they they leave it so open-ended with the ship just coming up you never really know exactly what's going to happen after that and it's kind of up to the audience you know do you do you think the baby's going to be okay do you think Theo is going to pull through. Is he dead? Is he going to get thrown into the ocean? You know, what's going to happen? Are they going to take the baby from her and and leave her stranded? They never, they never finish it. I never even, um, like I assumed Theo was dead. I never even thought anything other than she would get on the boat with her baby was going to happen. Because you have hope, Ben. (laughs) But I, it is a thing that I think is important with this film is that they do, they they end it at a weird moment. With a typical film, they would not end it with the ship just coming up and never seeing the resolution of that. They would have ended it with her on the ship, getting hugged by the crew, and you know the music would swell, and you know Theo would they would go you know off into the distance and see Theo's body just slumping over in the boat in the distance, you know something like that. 
kind of out of order here, but I feel like we'd had that swelling moment a little bit earlier in the movie when they walk through the soldiers with the baby. Yeah, and I th- and that's one of those shots that absolutely makes this film for me. I am an absolute sucker for long takes, and this film is just rife with really effective uh, examples of those. There are so many moments in this that where they just the camera just draws it out for such a long time. There are like four minute takes in this film, and it's it's fantastic. And that's something I was kind of curious whether you'd pick up on was the the use of continuous shots. Yeah, I think that was part of uh, like the atmospheric shots too, where it was just a really long shot. It's something you don't normally. Well, I don't have a lot of experience with that, but I don't normally expect to see in Western films. Those long shots, or the the long shots in in nature, especially, uh, which is like you're saying, happened a few times where they're showing, uh, especially nature overcoming, like overtaking something that people had made. There's a very serene quality to it in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I almost wonder, you know, what would have happened if somebody had tried to make this into a regular action movie with the fast cuts and the shaky cam and all that stuff. <laughs> I mean, how horrible would that have been? I would have liked it even less. I mean, right now, I'm just... I feel like my opinion of the movie is just barely worse than indifferent. It's not like I really hated it, uh, but I probably won't watch it again. Because there were definitely there were definitely enough positive qualities to the movie. Like, I can recognize that. I can see why people might like it. I just did not really enjoy... Overall enjoy watching it. Do you want to take a guess at who my favorite character in the movie is? Uh, uh, the white guy with dreads. Oh, no, no, wait, wait. Um, um, oh, oh, uh, old John Lennon. <laughs> I was going to go, no, Marichka. Really? Yeah. Okay. I feel like she was the, uh, if anybody in the movie was actually like a heroic figure, it was her, I mean, Theo, but, but also Marichka. I would say Jasper fits that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely to him too, but. I think near the end of the movie, when everything else was already gone to gone to shit, um, she kind of showed up and then stuck around. She was kind of the wedge Antilles of this movie. <laughs> you know, good good guys on the hero's side. You know, stays alive until at least the you know place gets bombed off screen. But yeah, that's that's true. I guess she's also dead. We never see a body. That's rule number one in movies. If we don't see a body, she could still be alive. <laughs> you never assume a character is dead. They could come back in the sequel that I hope to God they never make. <laughs> oh yeah, she uh, she showed up at a time, you know, when just a bunch of terrible, you know, something terrible had just happened in the movie, and then uh, she shows up and is ambiguous as to whether or not he should really be trusting her. Uh, and then he can't really communicate with her, which makes it even more difficult to um, trust her either, you know, from the character's perspective or from the audience's perspective either, because we don't, I don't, I don't speak Russian. I don't know what she's saying, but then, uh, you know, she sticks with them, beats up that cop with them. Yes. Yeah, Sid was weird as hell. That character speaking about himself in the third person and everything. That That guy's weird as hell, man. Yeah, I thought, it was, I thought he was an asshole from the very first scene with him. He was an asshole who was temporarily on their side. Yeah, I don't think he was even, I don't think he was even on their side. He just, somebody was paying him to do something, so he did it. Pretty much. And I think he thought it was funny that they called him a fascist. <laughs> but he is most definitely a fascist. 
And the fascism in this movie also, on rewatching it for the like dozenth time, I noticed that the the fascism really seeps into the narrative a lot quicker than I remembered from the first time I saw it. You know, three scenes in, you pass by a bunch of refugees, a bunch of dystopian scenery, uh, the propaganda of only Britain soldiers on. You know, it almost feels like you're stepping into 1984 for a little bit there. Yeah. I have to expect them to start talking about being at war with East Asia. <laughs> yeah, I did get that kind of sense. It's also super weird in terms of what normally you would expect from this kind of movie that they treated uh, even other Western Europeans as as that is this as this big group of Fujis instead of um, kind of what you might expect today. Like if there was if there's some sort of fascist movement that appeared in Britain today, they wouldn't be. Um, fast. They wouldn't be doing this against like French and German people as much as they do against, let's say, Turkish and other, you know, Arabic peoples. It's true. I think they specifically a couple times had like when they were on a bus at some point, like some German people as Fufujis, which is why I noticed it. No, that's that's a, actually a really good point. It is almost taken to even more extremes than what we could imagine going right now. You know, it feels a lot of it feels like a logical extension of what's going on with some of the far right movements gaining power in a lot of places, but it it almost feels even more insane. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's more insane to freaking dystopia, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> that, you know, the whole political situation too is something that the director has talked about in some of the interviews that I've seen on uh, Movie Phone and other websites. Uh, he talks about how he intentionally avoided having a dictator or any kind of dictatorship element to it. He wanted to make it very clear, you know, this is this is still Britain, this is still a democracy, but people are just wrong, you know. It's still a a monarchy. It's a parliamentary system. Yeah. yeah. Um. I mean, obviously, it's not a you know constitutional democratic republic or whatever we have over in America, but you know, <laughs> it's technically a dictatorship. Technically correct is the best kind of correct. <laughs> people are still voting over there is his point, though. You know, in this <laughs> in this future, people are still voting. They're just voting for the worst possible choices. And it's interesting, considering the movie is 10 years old, it, it almost feels prophetic for the current political situation, you know? Yeah. I mean, you've got situations like, uh, you know, the, the Marine Le Pen's party grabbing power in France. You've got... Uh, the freaking Golden Dawn in Greece, you know, all these far-right parties that are just grabbing power. You've got Trump in America. All the corrupt elements of Brazil's legislature deposing the, the prime minister. And the president, yeah. President. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre how much of this is, is being reflected now in the anti-immigration language, the anti-Muslim language, all the, all the insanity that's going on. I mean, we're facing the possibility of a president who's insisting on building a wall and kicking, you know, kicking foreigners out and, you know, banning Muslims from entering the country. No matter how slim, I still believe those chances to be of him becoming president. It's it's like the spirit of the 20th century was this great conflict of optimism slowly turning to cynicism. And now the spirit of the 21st so far just seems to be cynicism turning into something even worse. Hmm. And now I'm depressed. <laughs> Yeah, this is about movies, not a, po- a politics podcast. We're pissing off half our audience. <laughs> I did notice, one of the recurring things I did notice with Theo that was, I guess, supposed to tell me that he was, in fact, a good person, is that it seemed like animals consistently liked him. 
he's a Disney princess. <laughs> You're right, though. That is that's actually something I had never noticed before. But there are a lot of moments where little kittens are climbing on him and puppies are climbing on him, and the deer yeah, checking him out. His dog liked him. Yeah, that dog did. I think like when he was when he's escaping the um, the fishes, the compound, the dogs. Like he ran into them and they didn't, or when he was like listening to them uh, doing their meeting or whatever, uh, the dogs came by and he was it like they just they did not keep barking at him. Yeah, and yeah, that was that's always one of those moments that's so tense because I always forget whether the dogs screw him over in that scene or not. I can't, I can never remember because once again in a normal action movie, those dogs would have barked, the fish would have you know had to chase after him, and he would have you know had to grab a gun and start shooting back, and you know it would have turned into a big huge action sequence of them trying to escape. And instead, he just gets his feet really really dirty as he tries to push a car. <laughs> yeah, he. Uh... I like how he was like he didn't wear shoes. I think on purpose because he was trying to sneak around or something, and he just had his chance and took it without shoes. I don't think he ever found another pair of shoes that fit for the entire movie. Though they do have that pair of blue shoes that the older couple after the baby's born gives him, and it's this great moment of oh my god, he has shoes now. That's right. One of my favorite things about that escape from the fish is the guy with the white guy with dreadlocks, you know. Mm-hmm. Once again, the car door ends up being his mortal enemy. <laughs> I mean, th- this this movie taught me that if you ever want to get away from a white guy with dreads, just open a car door on the fucker. They cannot defend against it, apparently. <laughs> yeah, but uh, speaking of those revels, I don't. I'm not sure I really got what they were hoping to accomplish. They, to me, are proof that guns can make any moron dangerous. Those guys had the worst thought out plan ever and basically tried to create, tried to do an armed uprising against the government and got defeated by an airstrike within the first five minutes and would have gotten the baby killed and doomed the whole planet. And because, you know, but yet they were a legitimate threat simply because they were armed. I'm not even sure what they, I mean, they thought they were going to do was build a movement around this baby. Um, So I'm not sure how that was supposed to work. They were basically expecting to rally people to their cause and get everybody to take up arms, except they forgot to bring enough guns for any of the refugees. <laughs> also, tanks and planes. I mean, seriously, they're they're idiots. Yep. Yeah, I so I noticed they uh, had put. Um, I noticed they had put Key at the front, at the front wall of the building when they were being attacked by tanks with her baby. Because that's the best place for her, obviously. Yeah. Not sure they. <laughs> Again, I don't think they thought anything through. They really didn't. And I think that's very intentional. I mean, the whole time you're watching them drag her away towards the danger and you're sitting there thinking, is this a horror movie? Like, are you going to trip on your heel next? I mean, why are you running up the stairs when there's somebody with a tank outside? Why are you not slipping out the back door and getting the hell out of Dodge? Yep. And yet again, once that whole sequence of him trying to chase up the stairs and looking at all the refugees and seeing the white guy with the dreads to get killed and... All those various moments. Once again, another very long take. The movie takes its time. And it almost feels, you know, one of the things I really like about that is that having those tense moments be captured in these really long takes where it doesn't do a lot of close-ups. It doesn't conflict with the, you know, with the surroundings at all. You, you don't have that kind of, a, a, you know, break in the break in the tone of the film. It almost feels like the world keeps going no matter where the camera is. 
Like the camera could be looking around in any direction, and I guarantee you these actors are just, you know, playing out their characters, even though nothing's looking at them. Mm-hmm. And I know it was where you had to turn it off, but man, the sequence where Julian is shot is one of my all-time favorites in any film. I didn't actually turn it off, but that was when I kind of that I kind of lost interest. I think in the movie for a little bit. It's just an you know from a technical standpoint, it's just such an incredible moment because you start with them riffing on each other in the car that you know Julian and Theo are reminiscing about their good old days and Theo being this big badass before he got broken down. And then the ping pong ball trick, uh, key rolling her eyes at everybody. And then there's this gorgeous long take of this fiery car just barreling down the hillside, blocking their path. You get the, uh, with the, the AR, you know, augmented reality windshield UI warning in the mini impact, one of the few notes of it being the future that you get. Mm-hmm. And then all these crazy people start attacking. There's the motorcyclists, the shot. You know, Theo opening the car door on them because car doors are the mortal weapons of white guys with dreads. Um, And then just them running away, trying to save Julian, the cops blasting past them, them freaking out, the cops chasing them, pulling over, the cops getting shot. And then the camera just stays there on the side of the road and the car drives off without the camera. And we just stare at the cops dead bodies. I mean, it's just it's insanely real. And it's insanely disturbing, but it's just, it's such a powerful moment. Hmm. That's why I love it so much is just the technical brilliance of that. I think the scene that, the scene after that, where I did come back, you know, kind of was reengaging with the movie was when um, they are in the woods afterwards. um, And Theo kind of splits off from the other group just to start crying. Yeah. Clive Owen's just amazing in this film. That scene and then the scene where he, where he reveals her pregnancy to him are just astounding moments for him as an actor. Like just his reaction is completely pitch perfect. Mm-hmm. I think that the point where I actually wrote down that this movie is a uh, parade of depression and this is why I can't watch Game of Thrones uh, was when uh, Jasper gives Janice, and I'm pretty sure his dog, that, uh, that quietest drug... Yeah, I I break out in tears every single time I see that sequence. And I've, I've literally seen this movie at least a dozen times. Just the usage of the music, I mean, playing Ruby Tuesday as he's just calmly getting the drug ready and then going outside to fuck with the fish. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. But it is incredibly depressing. Yep. And that is, a, I mean, Michael Caine is... Just phenomenal, as always, but he just makes you care so much about that character. I made a joke about it earlier, but uh, there one of the other one of the interviews that I read about uh, with the director was talking about how apparently Michael Caine was very intentionally trying to play that character as an older John Lennon. <laughs> apparently, they were friends, and so he was just very much intentionally basing it off of the way that John Lennon was in private. And on that note, with Jasper, I also love that Miriam and Jasper get on so well. <laughs> and she's a character that I really wish that you got to know better in the film, you know? Yeah. I don't know if I don't know what it is about her, but there's just something about that character that really intrigued me and you never really get to find out that much about her. She does seem like um seems like one of those kind of people that has done a little bit of everything. Yeah, you just know she's got stories, but they never find their way into a bar for her to go into any of them. <laughs> it's like you just want her to live and hang out with Theo until the end of the movie so they can just go get a drink after it's all done. <laughs> yeah the the uh 
next item on the list of list of depression was when they took Mary away out of the bus. So, speaking of her, and what I thought was really powerful about that is you never you never see her die. You never hear a shot. Even you know, once again with the typical movie, they would have taken her out, and you know, Theo would be trying to hold key and you know cover her eyes, and then you'd hear the shot, and you know, you'd see Clive Owen's eyes go, "Oh, she's dead." They never do that. They just they show her get the bag put over. You see this line of people. You see a line of people being pushed up against the bus. You see a line of people dead, and that's all they have to show you. Mm-hmm. So even though this film is so depressing and so brutal and so rough, in a lot of ways, it's so much more restrained than a lot of the over-the-top sort of Mad Max-style dystopias that you see. As much as I love Mad Max, don't get me wrong. You know, they don't have to make everything look like Nazi Germany in the future. They don't have to make everybody have mohawks and ridiculous fashion choices. It it feels like a logical extension of how the modern world would go to shit. Hmm. I think another one of the uh, nearby in, in time during the movie, another one of the shots that I um, had liked enough to note uh, was there's a scene, which I think was one of the promo- like one of the promotional shots was Theo framed in a hole in some glass. But in the movie, it's actually key that Theo is looking at through the glass. So the shot is actually uh, key framed by a hole in some glass. I think that's when they're in that abandoned school and she's on the playground, right? I, I think so, yeah. And it's just such an interesting setting, too, because in that scene, it's, you know, she's sitting there on the swing. She's trying to get this rare moment of just pausing and, and taking her, you know, taking the time to kind of relax a little bit. And you feel like it's almost a safe environment, and yet Theo is still completely on edge. Mm-hmm. With good reason, because that Sid jerk shows up. I mean, yeah, he's a total dick. Though I gotta say, one of my favorite that guy actors. Uh, who uh, who else was that guy? He shows up in a lot of other stuff, like Train Spotting and Braveheart and other films. He's just one of those character actors that just shows up in weird little roles here and there, and you suddenly recognize him and go, "What's oh, that guy?" I mean, so much of this cast is made up of those kinds of actors, which I know you will get no benefit from having seen no movies whatsoever. But over time, you'll understand. It's a lot of fun when you see one of those kinds of one of those kinds of actors who just immediately uplifts the project. One of the other really weird moments from this film, though, that has always kind of struck me is the scene where they're going past the park and there are all these zebras and camels and rich people hanging out in the middle of the park. It's like they're all just saying, fuck it, and trying to entertain themselves. And I've always yeah. wanted to know a little bit more about that, you know? All the, the rich people fiddling while the society around them burns. It almost feels like you could make some sort of really weird, satirical Wes Anderson-style film out of those yahoos. <laughs> and at the end, hopefully they would all get eaten by cannibals or something. <laughs> I checked your that guy guy. I think Braveheart's the only other thing he's been in that I uh, have actually seen. I didn't actually know you'd seen Braveheart. I didn't think you'd actually sit through a three-hour movie that wasn't Lord of the Rings. <laughs> uh, yeah, I sat through it in uh, 1995 when it 1996 when it came out on VHS because it came out before Alien uh, Resurrection. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, one of the other uh, little neat things I noticed uh, was when he was when she was going into labor and he was helping her deliver the baby. The first thing I thought was, "Wait, how does he know how to deliver a baby?" And then I remembered that, um, like, he actually had a conversation with uh, 
Jasper about this, like that he had had a child. Yeah, they have several moments of talking about it. It's one of those things that they don't dwell on in the film, but over, you know, it's almost something you have to rewatch the film to to kind of pick up on just how much of that, you know, how much of that uh, backstory informs his character. Because he and Julian had a child together, and that child died in the flu, and right at the start of the whole infertility thing, and you never get the full story on what happened, but you get the sense that it was not a not a good situation for the two of them at all. Yeah, it's just it's horrible to think about what that must have done. But yeah, that's uh, that's all the notes I made about this movie. Was there anything I I should have noticed that I didn't, or anything else? Uh extracurricular that I may not know. One thing I will say about this movie is do not watch it after you've just had children. Don't do that. Diana and I actually watched this movie. We'd seen it plenty of times before, but when Cecilia was about a year old, we ended up watching it and it was just the, we were just sitting there like, Oh my God. Oh no. It was, it was rough. That is not a likely situation for me to find myself in. Oh, I know, but I'm just saying that is <laughs> that was a brutal that was a brutal night. Yeah, I could see that. Still love the film, but it was brutal. The one the one thought I will leave you with, though, is I wonder how long Jasper was living in that cabin in the woods, all hidden by the brushwood. You know, I want to know was he in that cabin before the shit hit the fan? I'm gonna guess yes, and also I'm not sure why. How did the the fishes notice or figure out where his you know driveway was or whatever? I think Julian must have said something in passing about him at some point, since they both knew him. You know, mm. I think that she unintentionally screwed him. But I definitely think Jasper seems paranoid that he could have been way been there way before the crisis necessitated it. Yeah, I kind of assumed that he. Yeah, I think he would have. That's that's how I. That's my head cannon. Ever since his apparent UFO sighting. <laughs> Which I love that Miriam was into that also. <laughs> um, his thing with his wife, though, that was another one of the uh, show don't tell or, you know, they didn't give any exposition about her whole situation. Yeah, they linger on that photograph of her in the article talking about being tortured, but they never they never go into detail. They never. You're right. And it's more effective that way, I think. They never had that scene that might have been in another movie where uh, when he's preparing the quietest, she doesn't like suddenly, oh, you know, come out, come back to just enough to say goodbye or something like that. Seriously, it's oh, man, you're making me hate Hollywood even more than normal. Just thinking about all the ways this film could have gone wrong. <laughs> she suddenly wakes up enough to go kung fu crazy on the fish and she and Jasper escape. <laughs> So final assessment. Yeah, I uh, stand by my. I like it just a little, a little bit less than being indifferent to the movie. I'm sure this is like it's your favorite movie or whatever. Uh, Not my favorite, but it's you. up there. My my final assessment will still remain technically a brilliant film. Not necessarily everybody's favorite subject matter, and I can definitely understand the the uh, setting turning people off. But technically, just absolutely top notch. Yeah, there were a lot of a lot of things I could technically appreciate during the movie, and I, like I said, there were there were a lot of scenes I did appreciate. But overall, yeah, I don't I don't think that I would choose to watch this movie again. Or knowing what I know now, I don't know that I would choose to watch it the first time. 
Fair enough. Well, that is Children of Men. So, what's the uh, what's next on the list? What is next on the list is a film called The Fisher King, which I have no idea whether you'd ever have heard of it or not. Have not heard of the movie. Well, get ready because it is by my all-time favorite director, Terry Gilliam, or as I call him, Terry Motherfucking Gilliam. <laughs> I've seen at least a couple, a few of his movies. Yeah, I know you watched Brazil at some point based on me telling you how amazing it was. And I think you've seen Baron Munchausen also. Yeah, and was there... I saw Baron Munchausen on my own. I think uh, the other one, Brazil, yeah, I think you got me to watch at some point. And I think we also watched, was it like Dark City or something like that? That is not a Terry Gilliam film. (laughs) Not remotely. That's by the same dude who did The Crow. What's the other movie I might have seen by him? I think there's three. Twelve Monkeys, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, Time Bandits. Don't worry, you'll see all of those. Yeah, none of of those have I seen. Well, The Fisher King is an excellent film. Once again, Robin Williams making his triumphant return to this list. The late great... Oh, is he really? He is. He's one of the stars of this one, along with Jeff Bridges, whom you would know from Big Lebowski fame. Yeah, I do. I do know him from that. But get ready. There is there is definitely some depression in that one, but it is, once again, a movie all about hope. And it is nowhere near as brutal as this one. <laughs> oh, come on. Terry Gilliam also directed Monty Python and the Holy Grail, according to IMDb. Okay, okay, but... That that was not entirely just Gilliam. That would be, well, Gilliam would probably yell at me for saying that, but yeah, I guess I guess I wasn't counting straight Monty Python pictures. Otherwise, I'd count Jabberwocky in there as well. Have not seen that one. Yeah, I guess it's just uh, Brazil and Adventures of Baron Munchausen that are the only ones, except for the Monty Python one. Well, he is fantastic, and you will have to watch his entire collected works before this project is complete, because I said so. But no, I think you'll like the movie. And you better. I keep I keep thinking that Terry Gilliam is dead, but I see he's still making a movie right now. I think it's because I keep thinking that he's Terry Pratchett, and he's totally not. Don't make those jokes, man. This year's been too hard for me. Come on. <laughs> All right. I lost my favorite musician. I can't lose my favorite director, too. Don't do this to me, Ben. Uh, so next movie is The Fisher King. Thank you very much. Thanks.